Welcome to How to Go to Work, the podcast that explores ways to get started. I'm author Lucy Clayton, and each week I'll be asking a guest to take us right back to the beginning. We'll be talking to people from all sorts of industries about how they began, how they chose their career or how it chose them, how they've met challenges or exploited chances, the times when they've been held back or inspired further. We know that even if you've had good support at home and in education, there are lots of things no one tells you about making the transition into the workplace. It's an almost universal rite of passage, and yet it's still shrouded in mystery. And a lot of this is simply because people can forget to talk about those early moments of their career once they reach the apex of it. So for young people, it's often hard to imagine what the journey looks like to the job of your dreams. So we're going to find out from the people who have been there and done that. And today, my guest is Antonia Belcher, founding partner of MHBC, an independent and multifaceted building and cost consultancy. Antonia has over 40 years experience in the construction and property industries and leads her own business founded in 2007. Her story of transitioning in a very male-dominated working environment where there was no history or visible LGBT influences to draw upon has inspired her to be a force for positive change for LGBT plus in all business spheres, but especially her chosen path of surveying. A board director of the Chartered Surveyors Training Trust, Diversity Role Models, Terence Higgins Trust, and a liveryman of the Worshipful Company of Chartered Surveyors, she seeks equal opportunities for women and LGBT plus within the construction industry, which has been an area generally slow to embrace inclusion. She's an important voice, a multi-award winner, and I'm completely delighted to be talking to her about how to go to work. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Um, let's Before we get on to all of that. Tell me, what did you want to be when you grew up as a child? I I wanted to be what I am and what I do today. I always love that answer and I'm always really jealous of it. <laughs> <laughs> Born to a working class uh, family where the father was a builder. Um, he was constructing things. He, he, he'd had a, a difficult journey. I, I remember him telling me he left school at the age of uh, 13. He said he could hardly read or write, but he could draw a good Mickey Mouse. <laughs> But in leaving school, he went on to um, clear bomb damage sites. Wow. And so he learned to use a saw and he learned to use a hammer. And that led to him, as he got old, uh, into his later teens, becoming a carpenter. And then he set up a building business. So I admired my dad. Um, my mum had told me the stories and I thought, you know, he had worked hard and he'd achieved. And I always thought, yeah, building is a good place to be. Um, But that was against uh, something else that was playing in my mind, which was, although I was born a boy, um, I always questioned whether I was really a boy um, in the gender sense. Um, But it was something I put very much to the background, um, didn't let um, influence me too much as a child because I was the oldest of four, uh, two younger brothers and an extreme younger sister. And uh, I was a bit of a, uh, I was meant to be the sensible one as we were all growing up. Um, But as I got into my teens and puberty was um, occurring, I I realised that, you know, I was different. I felt very different. And um, I had to fight hard to to lock up the thoughts that were were, um, invading my head. I I invented a a mental place where I would almost be kidnapped and taken and forced to be the girl that I wasn't. And uh, it was my way of mentally dealing with that condition that was in my head. But um, 
I saw my dad doing things. Um, he asked me to, after school, go to his accounts and I would help the accounts operation and play with numbers and do do pay packets and stuff like that. And then he would also ask me to um, go to the building yard and I would earn pocket money sweeping the yard and I would talk to the other carpenters and other chaps that were coming to the yard. And it just fascinated me, the whole idea of building. And um as I got to O-levels, um, obviously school was saying I needed to have an idea of a career, but I, I'd always said to myself, I want to go into construction somehow. And I thought about, could I be an architect? Um, and although I could draw very well, um, I was I was knew that I was a bit more of an anorak than a, than a true <laughs> design conceptualist. And I, see. and I could just see things uh, conceptually in the way that I knew an architect needed to. Um, so I tended to think about surveying and that had a lot of age, uh, estate agent friends who I, I talked to and they said this thing, there's this place called the, uh, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors and it's not a bad thing to be a chartered surveyor, so why don't you think about that? A bit of investigation led me to realise that most of these are valuation, general practice type surveyors who, who, do, who are in your estate agencies and run the big big property acquisition firms. Um, but that didn't seem to be my, my, my true spirit. I liked the idea of still having some involvement in construction and that led me to a build, looking at what building surveying was. And, and in those, so this is back in, in the early 70s. Um, I started work in 1975. And um, so a bit of research, um, uh, I realised that the uh, RICS had created this new faculty for building surveyors who sort of jokingly, they tended to be failed architects. They're right. <laughs> architects that, that were a bit like me, I suppose, wanted to be more more anoraki and, and, and deal with the te- technicalities behind construction. Um, so I decided, yeah, I was going to become a surveyor. And, um, and I remember, <laughs> remember my, going to my dad and saying, I've, um, I've got a job. I've, um, I, I got my A-levels um, and before I, I, I secured them. I had written to two or three big surveying practices here in London and I had said, have you got any places for a trainee? And one of them had written back and said, yes, if you get your A-levels, you, you've got a job here, come. And um, and I remember saying to my dad, I need some money for a season ticket uh, to get up to work. And he said, right, well, you come and work for me for three three weeks, four weeks, and that'll pay for a season oh, ticket. Wow, that's good parenting, isn't it? Yep. So I ended up working for him. <laughs> I just passed my driving You're test. You're working to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> and he made me drive one of his lorries. He regretted that because I remember I broke a plate glass window that was on the back of the lorry driving too fast over bumps. Um, and I remember also I was insulating a loft, um, putting the insulation down over the newly um, tacked up plasterboard and I fell through the plasterboard <laughs> and they had to re- redo the ceiling. So I remember when he gave me the money for the season ticket, he said, I think it might have been cheaper if I'd have just given it to you. <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> anyway, so that was that was the decision made. I but was... that was quite ambitious, right? You're still doing your A-levels. You haven't got them yet. You haven't taken them and you've already... Yeah. I mean, that's very punchy. Yeah, I... I I look back and I think, how did I do that? But I think it was just because I did have this decision. I wanted to be a surveyor. So you had clarity. So, so there was it was yeah. an obvious route. And I guess that is the great benefit of having that sense of... In fact, the only other person I've interviewed who has that sense is an architect. And he based, he spent his whole his childhood sort of copying plans, yeah. floor plans from estate agents. He would phone up and put a voice on yeah. and say to Saffles, could you send me please? <laughs> and, it, and it's funny because um, in going to work for this firm of surveyors in, in St. James's, I, I was a, a trainee um, 
I worked four days a week and one day I went to what was then the Polytechnic of the South Bank um, uh, in order to become qualified. Um, that was a five-year course. Um, uh, after the first year, it was at that point when uh, education in the UK was changing from polytechnics to university mm-hmm. and the South Bank University, uh, South Polytechnic of the South Bank became the University of the South Bank. Um, I was doing four days of work, one day at Poly uh, Uni, and um, and it was a great way to learn. And um, and so I learned over a long period, but but I was working in the coal face. I was learning with the guys at work. And interestingly, when I was at, at the Polytechnic, I had joined a group of, of surveyors who were trying to get a degree in, in building surveying. Um, and a lot of those were older gentlemen um, and, and women who, who were working already in, biz- in work, but found that their careers were being limited because they weren't quali- uh, 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 sufficiently see. qualified. So they were seeking a degree as well. And some of these people were, were what we call district surveyors who, who, who um, administer all the building control for the government. And I would sit in the coffee shop having a coffee between lectures and talk to these guys and girls. And I would learn new things, mm-hmm. things that I'd never learned at work, but I was learning from what they were doing in their job. And it was, it was amazingly um, formative. It, mm. it just opened my eyes to what was going on in the industry, not just in where I worked, but everywhere. I think so it was a great really way important. to learn. And, and maybe you had the confidence to do that partly because you'd spent a lot of time, I guess, under your father's wing, but in, in working environments, talking to all, all sorts of different people on various jobs. Yeah. But one of the things we say in the book that's really important is as a young person in a new environment, you can learn so much from just making sure you have those conversations over, over coffee with someone who, and it's really important not to think that just because someone is 20, 30 years older than you, that you might not, A, be friends, or B, be able to learn so much Absolutely. from having those those yeah. conversations. You can just sort of take it on effortlessly. Mm. But I think sometimes people struggle with that initial sort of, um, with the confidence that it takes to just sort of ha- talk to new people. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning today at my age. I'm learning today from the people I talk to. And quite often I'm learning from the people who are younger than me. <laughs> and, so and, galling. And, 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 <laughs> no, but that is right because they, you know, they've, they could have just been out of uh, university or, or they could have just changed job and be working in, a, in, a, in another firm that's a competitor of mine. Um, but, but by talking to them, listening to them, mm. um, wanting to understand what they were doing, how they did it, you learn. Yeah. And it's, it's important to do that. So, so I did this five year um, day release uh, degree. Um, and uh, through, through that um, process, um, I was c- coming up to London to work. Um, I, I, I actually did think it was a great thing leaving. Home was back in Surrey. Um, and I, I, I sort of realised to myself that if I worked locally, it would be a bit parochial. Mm-hmm. I, I would be learning my business, but it would be very much in a, in, a, in a rural, local location. In order to become a good surveyor, I needed to be in London and learn in London. And, uh, and, and that opened my eyes to London. Um, I think it was part of my growing up, mm-hmm. being exposed to London. And it's something that I've told my own children and wanted mm-hmm. them to to not work locally, try and get up to London and work because it's a great way to grow up. It's a great way to open your eyes to everything. Um, and it teaches you a lot, you know, good and bad. Yes, um, yeah. And so that, that's an important thing. And I think importantly, you don't have to stay forever. You but don't you, have to stay. <laughs> but no. you, I think you have to do a stint. I've stayed. Um, <laughs> I enjoy London. London has been good to me in many senses. Um, so um, 
I, it was, I think, the fact that um, I applied myself at, at both uh, university and work, which I was doing because I needed to apply myself because I needed a reason not to think about something else that was going on in my head. And that was my defence mechanism through those years. Um, I found that the more I kept myself busy, um, the more I didn't have any time to dwell. I didn't. I, I, I could keep that 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 person that was inside me that I knew was there. I could keep them locked up. Um, and now I did that. I think successfully because no one realised right. that I I had this other persona or, or, or these feelings and. Um, and part of coming up to London, I met my wife on the train. Um, <laughs> we just got talking and, and went out, went, started going out. And um, we were, you know, peas in a pod, really. It was just great. And, um, and I married her within a year or two of meeting her. Um, and then we started a family, um, had our first child, Nicholas, who's now 37. Um, and... Um, to all intents and purposes, you know, I was leading the normal conventional life. Yeah. Um, I had got qualified as a surveyor. The firm had recognised that I was hardworking um, and they promoted me and I became a, a salaried partner at quite a young age for what was a West End practice, particularly someone who was working in building surveying rather than the conventional valuation right. and buying, brokering, selling property. Um, but that also, um, they, they, they had the faith in me to ask me to grow that part of the business, which was a fledgling side of, of the practice at that point. So I was able to recruit and I, then I was sort of managing people. And, um, and over a few more years, um, I was more involved in the, the senior partnership level, sitting around the board table. Um, I was telling them where we should expand and we should do and new business opportunities existed. And I think they just saw in me someone who was reliable, who, who, who worked really hard at not understanding why I might be right, right. So, so hardworking. Um, and they made me an equity partner. So from that point, I was, I, I owned a small portion of the firm. And, uh, and as I say, you know, anyone looking in would have said, you know, this person's You've doing all right. It. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they're doing everything as, 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 as we'd want them to do. Would you describe yourself at that point as a workaholic, do you think? Um, by today's standards, yes, but not <laughs> necessarily by what was going on then, because it's interesting. And one of the things I recognise very much about my, my junior years is that uh, I, I, was, I was being trained to be very adversarial right. and, to, um, and to be combative in the way um, I conducted business because generally in in, a, in in the big practices here they're they're doing big projects. Um, the contractors, the one that's you, you're, you're you're having to make do the job right. You're having to control them, so the cost is 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 is, is carefully monitored. Um, and it, it tends to be an adversarial um, environment more so back then because you know the economy was different. Um, and and as a young surveyor, they were moulding me to to not take any any nonsense, yeah. to be forthright, uh, which which was a bit odd because in a way, that wasn't really me. But but I was being trained to do it, mm. and 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 because I was being trained to do it, I, I could do it quite well. Yeah. And in a way, it surprised many people when I did decide to to be honest about myself and tell everyone who I really was, that they thought, well, this is a bit strange. How could she have been like he was right. all those years back? Um, but it just shows you what training can do. Totally. And also how, yes, you can be trained out of 
perhaps not forever, but trained out of your natural instincts in things as well, which is both a remarkable truth, but also a frightening truth, I think. Yeah. And and in a way, um, I think it was it made made my transition. And by that, I mean my transition from male to female, probably a little bit more difficult in the workplace. So the firm that I, I joined from from school um, back in 1975, I stayed with until 2007. Um, and I left them in 2007 to form this the partnership um, firm that I'm now uh, running along with two other surveyors. Um, but in, two, in uh, 2000, um, or between 2000 and 2003, I was wrestling with a need to transition uh, formally from male to female. Um, and the, the problem I had was uh, that... Um, I, I had got to a point in my life where I did have everything. I had a nice car. We'd more or less paid the mortgage off. Um, you know, money was easier. We were no longer overdrawn at the bank. Um, we'd had three children by then. We, we did lose uh, a stillbirth um, girl as well. So we'd, we'd had sort of um, our, our rocky road mm. um, bits of the, the journey. But, but to all intents and purposes, we were a really happy, settled family, three lovely children, um, and, and everything that life wanted. And, and, and uh, halfway through that period, I'd found that I was not as busy as I should be. And that's when I went off and I bought a, a rundown vicarage in France <laughs> and I spent all my holidays restoring it. So I had another challenge to worry about, to keep my mind off things. Um, and I was always constantly finding things to do. But I did get to a point where, yeah, I, I, I wasn't as busy at work. Um, I, I had a big team around me. It was more delegation and managing. Um, and we weren't worried about the, what was going to happen next. And, and it was at that point that I started to think about who's that person I'd locked away in my head and I'd never allowed a voice, I'd never allowed a persona. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, this obviously podcast is not is not about the, the subject of being transgender so much, but but when you are transgender, it's, it's, a, it's a unique situation yeah, how you personally think, deal with it. I think in your case, what you're saying is that you had used your success at work had had you had used it all the way along I mean obviously you're passionate about what you do professionally yeah. uh, that's no one's faking that but you but the fact that you you had almost used it as a shield and yeah. a barrier I think a to, shield is a good word yeah. and it's not until there's that moment of pause and I actually think that that's really common to lots of people's experience that quite often it isn't until there's a moment of pause where everything seems suddenly spookily settled that you think oh shit, I'm going to have to actually, I can't hide from that anymore. Yeah, or or what, how I got what, does life, <laughs> what does life mean? You know, yeah, why, why exactly. am I here? Why, what is the purpose? Yes. Yeah. And I think it's almost in the sort of cut and thrust either of a busy working career or frankly with, you know, a, a young family where it's just frankly, everyone's just getting to six o'clock every day. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of time for reflection. No, and I and I wasn't reflecting, and, and in a way, I, I, not, I, right? I had purposely created a, a lifestyle where I wasn't allowed or, or wasn't given the, the the time to reflect. But I found I was, and um, and and I really wasn't sure how to deal with that. And and actually, it's not something you just say, right? I'm going to change my entire lifestyle. You don't do that. Um, I started to dabble, um, dabble in in that that other person, and um, you know it started very 
basically just buying the odd skirt at Marks and Spencers, <laughs> the odd blouse. I was I would be driving to do uh, surveys up in the north of the country. Um, I would stow the bag of bits in, in the boot and I would be at a hotel for a couple of nights and one night I might just stick the blouse and the skirt on and sit happily on the settee and just be quite content that, right. that, that I, I was allowing that other being in me to have some presence yeah. and, and quite often I'd drive uh, back back to London afterwards and I'd be disgusted with myself and I would throw, throw the newly bought clothes in the bin at the motorway service stop um, but I would probably repeat that again a few months later and then the rapidity of repeating it would increase yeah. and this time I wasn't throwing everything away I was keeping it stashing it in the boot of the car so that I had more more to um, to dress up in and, and I would find, you know, as, as time passed, I would be brave and I'd walk out of the hotel, you know, no, no danger of anyone knowing me, but right. I just feel I'm, I'm out in the open. Um, and, and I did that probably over a two year period. But I found rather than sort of um, sating me, it was it was driving the need for more. And it was at that point that I thought, now, what am I going to do? And um, so um it was a stage where we had the thing, uh, a thing coming to the fore in, in the UK of called uh, buy, to, buy to Let. Yes. <laughs> and um, so I said to my partner, my wife, I said, um, you know, we've we got a bit of spare money. Why don't we buy another another flat or a property? And we let it because I understand this Buy to Let is the next big, next big thing. And maybe we buy one or two. And she said, yeah, that sounds a great idea. Where do you think we should buy? And I said, well, we live on the west side of London, out, out um, by Guildford. And I said, why don't we buy on the east side of London? So, you know, none, none of us know that part of the world. We will never see the tenants. We don't need to worry too much. And she said, yeah, that sounds a great idea. But of course, what I was doing, I was, I was plotting and planning. Um, so I bought the flat, um, we furnished it. And after about three months, I just, just said to her, I'm struggling to find a decent tenant. And I think we don't really want it void for too long. Um, but I've, I've got this cunning plan. Why don't I use it during the working week? And I and then when I come home at the weekends, I won't be so worn out getting the train right. and all the stuff. And um, and it, 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 it would enable me to network better at work and all that sort of stuff. And so she said, yeah, that, that's a good idea. So, But of course, what I was doing was going to use the flat for Antonia's home. So instead of keeping the clothes in the boot of the car, right. they, they were going to find a they wardrobe. They an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, it was, the, it was the point where everything went, went ballistic from there because obviously I, I created a fantastic wardrobe. <laughs> And I, so and your shopping habit went right. I, I, I'd never shopped so much in all my life, <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed it, of course. And um, but I was buying so much more. I was I was kitting out a home that was to be right. Antonia's home. And it was at this point buying the flat that that I was up in London in the evenings, and my evenings were were mine. And um, so I then naturally started to think about, well, well, what does a trans woman do? And um, I'd sort of bought my time out, and I'd sort of deciphered what some of the things meant there. And I was investigating the trans clubs and beginning to to just understand who I was and, and and appreciate there were other people like me. Up to then, I'd been an absolute greenhorn. Um, I, you know, and this is all pre-internet, so, you, you know, you're not like today. You so can actually that inter- period of discovery is was much more challenging than it would be now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I never knew a gay person. I, you know, I, I, I was... I was just living in a vacuum of, the, right. you know, I thought I was the only person that had this strange problem. Um 
you know, I'd been frightened when I was about 11. I'd read the dad's newspaper and April Ashley was splashed across the paper. And, and when I read that, I just thought, no, I can't be like that. It was that, such that, an that ugly time, all of that, that oh, narrative in, in the popular press is just yeah. sort of unimaginable yeah. now. And, and my family, you know, my family are, my, my, my dad was, is, is dead now, but he was an atheist, really. My mother's Catholic, so it was a bit of a, a hodgepodge of religion. But the back, the, you know, the family home was, you know, was very do, do unto others as you wish done unto yourself. Um, and as kids, it was mind your P's and Q's, you yeah. know, be boisterous by all means, but not at home. Um, you know, to have told them that I, I had these strange thoughts and that my gender wasn't who I really they thought I was, you know, would have just destroyed them. So yeah. it was, it, I wasn't, it was never going to go there. But at this point, so you're in the flat during the week. Yep. You so, have that freedom. I'm using that word loosely. Well, so what I was doing was I was t- during the daytime, I was being Anthony doing my day job. I was leaving the office about six, seven o'clock going to the flat. It would take me nearly an hour to two hours to get ready, depending on what I was doing. Um, never got out <laughs> <Same> much. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> never got out much before sort of 9, 30, 10 o'clock. But I would go to these clubs and um, and I would stay out really late. It wouldn't be unusual to be coming home at three, four o'clock in the morning because I was enjoying being Antonia. Right. And, and was, those were the only hours available to you. I was doing so it Monday gonna, night, Tuesday right. night, Wednesday night. Oh God, I feel Thursday exhausted. Night. Don't. <laughs> Nine o'clock's my bedtime. <laughs> and, and I would get back really late and of course, it would then be like an hour's worth of scrubbing the makeup off for the fear I was in a boardroom and someone was seeing mascara on my eyelashes. Of course. And, um, but I did that for five years. I led a second life. I led a second life, um, and a nocturnal second life as Antonia for five years. And it was fabulous. It was fabulous. I met the most wonderful people. Um, I, I understood a bit about myself. It took probably year two for for me to understand, I wasn't. Um, I thought. I thought. I, I thought I was a crossdresser, a transvestite. Mm-hmm. But I began to realise, comparing myself with those people who are, there's no way I was a transvestite. Discussing things, I realised. Yes, I was transgender or transsexual, as I, we were called then. Of course, yeah. And um, and it just opened my eyes, and it gave me sanctity in my head. But behind all this, of course, was the fear of what I was doing. Right. And we're also navigating. I mean, the problem with any double life is that you're having to do two lots of things. So you're having to navigate. Obviously, there's a huge amount of, um, as you say, kind of wonderful discovery that's happening and necessary discovery. But at the same time, you are holding up your previous identity between the hours of, you know, as you say, nine to seven or whatever. And that's that's and at home. And keeping them separate. And, and that's, not, I feel so stressed. Not even allowing about. them to merge in any way. And, and that diff- must have taken a real toll on you just on a yeah. kind of energy level and yeah. on a. Yeah, I was exhausted level. by the end yeah. of the five years. I mean, honestly, I feel exhausted even thinking about it because I'm so. <laughs> I just don't have any stamina. So I, the idea that that pressure is upon you and then that pressure is twofold because it's at work and it's at home. I just, how, how do you think that that affected is that why you needed the the that because five years sounds like a really long time but mm. to a certain extent maybe it's that that's it needs to be a long time because you've you're also being very careful about everyone else in your life aren't you this mm. isn't about being yeah I have, of, I've, I have been very careful I mean in retrospect the five years seem really short now when right, I look back okay. but but through the period um 
I, I got to about year three, year four, and I was beginning to feel really uneasy about myself. Um, you know, the, the, the idea I was, I was lying and cheating and deceiving all those that loved me. Um, and, the, and, and, the, and the sort of the, the backdrop to that, knowing that, am I ever going to reverse this? Am I ever going to stop this? Did Where, you think at it? that point that there was an option? or Because I'm interested at the beginning, when you, so when you're talking about having the clothes in the back of the car, mm. at that point, did you think I can put a lid on this or I can turn this I around? I think so. Yeah, right. I think I did. And I think I, would th- I, I, I thought I was doing it each time I didn't do it for yeah, whatever okay. period of yeah. time. I mean, I joke about it, but, you know, through those five years and the lead up to them, you know, I probably would have been a great spy. I could have worked for MI5 and it would have been brilliant because <laughs> you do end up managing these yeah, silos it's of, really of, of personality and, and what they're doing. I mean, I opened bank cards and store cards in Antonia's name and she didn't exist. She right. was my my alter ego that was nocturnal. And, and I was able to do it. I mean, I don't know if I was committing fraud or what, but... but <laughs> I did it because it was the only way I could survive. I couldn't go and buy. I didn't want to no longer go. I remember going into Marks and Spencer's once as Anthony in my suit and buying the skirt and top. And the the two assistants were singing, um, I want to feel a woman tonight. And because obviously I guess they thought that's, you know, and so so you do get embarrassing moments, you know. So as soon as I had this nocturnal life and I was, you know, I was out four nights a week and I wanted to buy different clothes. I didn't want to be seen too much in the same thing. I, I was, I had, I had removed my hair, my, my body hair by IPL, which was never noticed by anyone. I removed my beard by IPL um, and that was not noticed. Um, I was never that her suit, so it wasn't right. like I had a, 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 a deep shadow, five o'clock <laughs> shadow or whatever. Um, but but I was doing all sorts of things. I'd gone to see a voice coach and I'd had about half a year's worth of voice coach mm. work with a theatrical voice coach. And she was teaching me to um, um, bring my voice box up into the upper quartile so that it sounded like a what would be to, by today's standard, a, a, a brown voice, a, woman, a woman's brown voice. Yeah. And um, which does work. And but I, I was doing lots of things to make those five years more enjoyable. And, and it was all in the pursuit of passing. And, and I, I did pass. I, I could pass. Um, or at least I thought so. And um, but I realised as more and more I did it, I, I hated myself. I was beginning to really dislike myself for the lying and the cheating. And I also realised that people were, must must by now start to see a different person in me, either physically or mentally. And, and I was right. My wife thought I was having an affair. That was her view. Yeah. Um, and um, so so what's what changed that? Well, it was it was most strange, really. My wife and I had gone on holiday. We went to the Seychelles. Um, we had a lovely week. And at the end of the week, we were having uh, dinner, candlelit dinner. And um, I just found myself telling her, I just said, I just opened my mouth and I just said, I'm going to tell you something now that's going to change our lives forever. And I told her and, um, you know, I, I wrecked her world uh, within five seconds. It, it was so very quick. Um, and um, she, we, we talked for about three months about it without changing anything. Um, she said, um, could I just be, um, be a, a transvestite, just, just have my weekends or, or do things every now and then and, and enjoy that and, and, and still be the husband and the father and come home in the normal way. And I said, I try. 
Um, and I said, in, in turn, would she like to meet Antonio and come out with Antonio and meet Antonio's friends to get some link between the yeah. two worlds I'd created? And she said she would. And she did. And for a few months, we had quite enjoyable times going out and it was all new for Andrea. But I realised it was it was m- more damaging for her because mm. what she saw as new, she realised wasn't new as wasn't she met new. all these people okay. because they were so comfortable with me. They'd known me for five years. Um, she realised that there was a lot of solidity behind this other person. So she was the newness, really. Yeah. So That's and, hard. And, and it was hitting her hard, yeah. really hard. And um, so we sat down and talked and... Um, and I said to her, I can't, I can't be that transvestite. I, mm-hmm. I, I really, you know, Antonio is a part of my life and I know really that is the true me. Um, and I just said, well, do you have any objection if I actually transition at work and work as Antonia? Because we got the flat in London, I can, I can, I, I, I reversed what I was doing more right. or less. I, instead of going out in the night, I was working as Antonia. <laughs> Please tell me and, you had some early nights during oh, that yeah, period. I did, I did, I did. <laughs> okay, you caught up. I did. Good, because I'm very worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously, what I did is I came home. I came back to Guildford at the weekends as Anthony. Of course. Okay. So, I was so the lead, structure has changed. I, I reversed the double life yeah. role in a way, and I made work the place where Antonia was becoming the real person. But you work in a traditionally super macho male dominated industry and I can't begin to imagine having already gone through what is a challenging challenging conversation about family Mm -hmm. how you then approach an industry that is not super welcoming let's be honest (laughs) even to women necessarily let alone to any complexity tell me about how you how how you kind of, I guess, it's current, it feels like such an incredibly brave thing to do. How did you get to that point? Okay, so I was working for, I was an equity partner of a firm in St. James's in London. Um, we, our clients were the great and the good, the big landed estates. We had a lot of... It's as old school as it gets. <laughs> as old school as it gets. I was the only partner that hadn't gone to public school sitting around the table. There were seven partners around the, around the boardroom table. I was one of them. So I had decided I'm going to transition and I was trying to work out how do I tell the guys? And I had concluded that they would ask me to go, that they would not want me around. I had seen enough through the years. There was no LGBT awareness. Um, I'd sat around the board table and heard them tell the jokes about the female Mm. secretaries. Um, Some of them were not good. And, And I'm just thinking... You know, this is how, a done deal. How do I deal with it? So I thought the only way I could deal with it was to shock them. So I graded them from approachable down to credible <laughs> and thought I'm going to start with the approachable ones first. Right. And I phoned one and I would say, I've messed up on a job. I've made a big mistake and we're going to get sued. The client is girdling their loins to sue us. Um, what I'd like to do is really tell the other partners all the details but before I tell the wider partnership, could I just have your counsel as to how you think I should inform them? So do you mind meeting me in the wine bar tonight at seven o'clock and we'll have a chat and I'll buy you a beer? So they would go, yes. And I would then leave the office, go to my flat and I would change and become Antonia. And I would then go to the wine bar and wait for them to arrive. They would arrive, they'd look around, they'd see no Anthony, they'd go to leave. And I would go up and tap them on the shoulder and say, I am here. I've got a, I've got a story to tell you. Just give me the time and let me tell you it. And then I'd sit down and tell them. And I'd say, 
We've agreed, as we all know, that we're going to break the lease and we'll be leaving our offices in 10 months' time. And we were going from one side of St. James's Street mm-hmm. to the other. And I said, when we start in the new office, that's when Antonia is going to be working. Um, she's going to be as you see her now. Um, I hope you're going to be okay with this. Um, if you're going to have any trouble with it, then tell me now. Mm-hmm. If you want me to go, I will go. But I've resolved that I can cut the mustard as Antonia yeah. wherever I am. Your choice whether I do it here at the firm, which I've been at all the time, or I go. And I said, if this has worked for you, if you've helped to understand the circumstances, don't tell the others. I'm going to do exactly the yeah. same with all of them, one by one. And then you can all get around the table without me there right. and you can decide what you want to do. And as it turned out, they didn't talk to any, any one of each other. So that plan worked? The plan worked. I saw them all over two weeks, breathed a sigh of relief at the end of the two-week period. Um, no one had thrown their Teddy out No one had given you any crazy... No, no one it, had I mean, been... those are not straight... They're not easy conversations to no. have. They were patient with me. Okay. Um, but, but they're... You know, they, they are senior players within their, their business sphere. And um, so they've sat around negotiating tables, not giving their cards away. Right, right. And I've seen them do it. So I know I knew exactly that I, I, shouldn't, <laughs> draw, I shouldn't draw any conclusions from, from that first meeting. And um, it then took them about nearly two months before one of them turned up. And they just said, we've convened, we've discussed, we've met, and we've decided you make too much money to ask you to go. <laughs> And that was exactly the words, words word. oh. that they told me. So no empathy. No. No no offer of support. This is a ruthless commercial decision. This decision out of commercial necessity. But I said to myself, okay, well, I don't really want to be out of work. Um, no, and you've I, and your plan did work. I mean, it was an extraordinary. I mean, again, it feels strategically. I think you would have been a great spy because. <laughs> As a plot, you've pulled it off brilliantly. Yeah. So so the 10 months passed. I didn't change until we moved into the new offices. The first day I turned up as Antonia, started unpacking my crates. Um, I think the partners didn't think I would do it. Do you think? Okay. Yeah, because they hadn't told the staff. Ah. I couldn't tell the staff. So it was a surprise to the staff. They all went off to the pub, I think, oh. for the first two two lunch times and had a giggle and a drink. To discuss it at length. And I just remember sending an email around at the end of the week just saying, right, everyone knows it's Antonia, not Anthony, or it's Tony still. Yeah. And um, business as usual, if you're really interested in what I'm doing and why, come and see me. I'd be delighted to talk to you. Not many of them did, really. It was quite staggering, really, that they, I just got on with it. I was in my absolute element. I was working as Antonia. I was enjoying every minute of it. Um, I I had reticence in the first few months. Um, I wasn't getting out and talking to clients as much. Andrew, who was my my lieutenant at the time, is one of the partners here who helped me start this business together. Um, He realised what I was doing and he started inviting the clients into the office to come and see me. Oh, good for him. Yeah, okay. And and it was really interesting because, you know, we were... We were about 40% of the overall firm in, in staff numbers. And um, I had one of the biggest clients that the firm was working for. I've been doing lots with them. And I was a bit reticent about telling them too quickly. Um, but they turned up, the two of them, the two guys, um, this from a very big organisation, they turned up and they just came into my office and they just said, Antonia, what, don't you realise we come to you for your brain, not <laughs> how you look? <laughs> And by the way, you look bloody good. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
There is a theatricality about the way you chose to do that. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, that was clearly very deliberate. You did this, none of this is, is a, a rash response to any kind of um, outpouring of feeling. This is, you know, all very careful and considered. Do you think that there, was that the only way you felt you could make that real in that moment? Or, or Because I'm wondering for people listening who might be also thinking about sim- having similarly difficult conversations. It sounds like in that scenario where, there, as you say, the response is there wasn't any support, there wasn't any kind of contextualising of what was happening. It was just sort of commercially, this makes sense, so we're going to have to suck it up kind yeah. of thing. But if you were doing that now, if you're having to kind of go through it all over again, do you still think that, because it, it, it worked a treat, and I wonder whether that, to a certain extent, you needed that kind of... Backstop. Strategically, what you did was to demonstrate who you were well, by, uh, by I, p- yeah. turning up. That's right. And I always, I've always said and always maintained, like, if, if someone in the family knew, um, then I would very quickly try and meet the person as Antonia. Because right. I'm a great believer in you only believe what your eyes tell you. Yeah. And, you, and so, so people might have thought, oh, Anthony's now Antonia, but they might, they'll start to conceptualise their view of what Anthony yeah. looks like as Antonia and how she Whereas behaves. Whereas you want to demonstrate. I, want to, I wanted them to realise that actually, you know, I am comfortable being Antonia. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's natural for me. It's the real person. Um, I, I, and it, it's, 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 it's difficult. And, and that's why the transgender journey is so particular for each individual. There's, there's no, there's no pattern to things. Um, for me as, as a man, I didn't abhor my maleness. I didn't abhor being a male. I didn't, mm-hmm. it, I wasn't, it wasn't out of body in, in, in the sense where I would have killed myself, but I just knew it wasn't me. Right. And I, I, and I, I never really felt comfortable, but, but it wasn't to the point where I just hated who I was. Um, and I think for that reason, um, the change, you know, ev- everyone, yeah, they use that word, I hate that word gobsmacked, but they use the word that they were literally gobsmacked when they heard about my change. Mm. Um, so, so for five years, I worked at that firm. And as the partner I was, I sat around the boardroom table. Um, and we went from strength to strength, um, particularly within my business, because I was growing it. Um, but I realised that when they'd said to me, you make too much money to, to let you go, and I didn't really get any empathy and any support. You know, they never come to me and said, do you need more time off? Um, you know, and, and, and I've, I've always been quite hardworking in early, work late. Um, you know, there was never, never a conversation with me. Is there anything you specifically need now that you didn't right. have before? Never had a conversation of that to- that, uh, at all. Um, they, they were never they were never outwardly aggressive or adversarial in any way. One, two of the partners, I think, really struggled with it. Mm. Um, they were very, were very rarely talked to me. Um, they almost put up with me, but right. they didn't. But they weren't aggressive. But I, I realised for that f- that five year period that I've crossed a line. I I don't need to be at this business anymore. I now can go out and be mm. Antonia. And so I just said to them, I'm going to leave. Um, but it was sparked by them asking me to be senior partner, which was which was a bit interesting and, <laughs> and quite unique because I didn't think they would ever do that. But they asked me to be senior partner. And I just said, no, I don't want to do that. And they were staggered. Um, I said, in fact, guys, I'm thinking of leaving. 
And so for a period of time, we had lots of conversations about, you know, they wanted me to stay and they were re- reworking the, the share of the equity and mm-hmm. trying to be more fair about things because it, it was a little bit unfair. But that was because we were building surveyors, not, not general practice surveyors. And, um, and we had a lot of discussions. And Andrew, my partner here, um, he was a, my, my lieutenant partner or he was a partner with me on the same side. Mm. Um, he said, I, 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 I see that you're going to go. And I said, yeah, I am going to go. He said, right, well, I'm telling you now I'm coming with you. <laughs> I'm not staying. And I said, oh, well, that's fantastic. Um, uh, and um, so we started plotting how we were going to leave. And, um, and what happened is it snowballed. So Sean, who was another junior partner at the firm, he said, I hear you two are going. He said, I want to come with you too. And so by the time I left, I took 18 people from the business They'd all come to me and said, we hear you're going. Can we come with you too? It's like the opposite of that scene in Jerry Maguire where he stands up with his box of stuff and he says, who's coming with me? And no one comes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing. So, so you know, I left, I left on the 1st of April 2007 and set the new business up. And we, and I, they, 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 put a what's known as a five mile restraint to trade against me right. so that I couldn't set up shop in St. James's. Yeah. And so Andrew and I searched around London, looked at our client base, decided which clients would come um, and decided where we wanted to be in terms of opening a new shop. And we decided on coming here. So this is the office we found back in 2007. We should say in the shadow of St. St. Paul's, Paul's Cathedral. Cathedral. It's very beautiful. <laughs> Who needs St. James's, I would say. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's been a, a, a great, a, a great move. And, um, and, and what happened was, yeah, about a month, a month into working here, um, I would look around and I would just think, think, you know, I actually did think, I thought, blimey, what's going on? We're working so much harder. Everyone seems to be really down, mm. really, really busy. And I remember saying to Andrew, you know, am I missing something? And he, he, he just said, he said, you probably are. He says, you don't realise. He said, what you've done in, 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 is, is motivational for them. Mm. They've found it motivating and they want to be part of what's going on. And, and, you know, I think that's so important. And I think it leads us very naturally to talking about a word which is, I think, horribly overused and often used wrongly uh, in relation to work, but about authenticity. Mm-hmm. And you, what the whole sequence of events that you have just described has been from living a, a life that felt to you fundamentally fractured to one that is truly authentic and I think often when we talk about it we talk about it in a sort of namby-pamby way as if authenticity is just about being able to what you eat you know eat for lunch what you want to eat for lunch or go home at four o'clock or whereas actually and what all of this demonstrates is that true real authenticity at work is not only deeply inspirational for everybody else but it also means that then you are kind of your most powerful self at work because you aren't distracted or fractured by other things you are able to be entirely yourself and therefore give of yourself to whatever is in front of you whether that you know that it's about it's as much about focus as anything else yeah and 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 i i mean i you i talk about authenticity as well and i think there is a power in authenticity um but it is it is that sort of instinctive natural um you know comes from the the heart about just who you are and you know we, we all invariably throughout 
stages of life are, you know, we're all going through a journey. We're all trying to get somewhere. It's a strange journey, but it's a journey that's immensely fulfilling for me. You know, I, I, I do think that being a transgender, and I know there'll be a lot of transgender people that might think I'm bonkers, <laughs> but, but in a way, I think my being transgender is, is a gift for me. It's enabled me to be you know, who I, who I know I am. Had I denied my transgender status and tried to live all my life as a man, um, then I would, I probably would have been an okay guy, you know, yeah. but I'd have carried a secret to my grave mm. and I'd never really fulfilled and lived, a, uh, you know, an authentic life. Um, but it's been really interesting. And of course, what happened was, you know, this was 2007, come 2008, we've got Lehman's going pop. Yeah. Um, we've got the global financial crash occurring and unfolding through 2009, 2010, 2011. And, you know, the partners here in the new business set up, we were beginning to think, oh, blimey, have we done the right thing? <laughs> um, but Actually, the clients were great. They came as we thought they would come. They were not deterred by a transgender um, woman running the practice. Um, Indeed, you know, I remember them saying, I had many clients say to me, Antonio, if you can do this in the construction industry, we want more of you, not less of you. So, you know, please do this job (laughs) for us. And it was wonderful in that sense. So we managed to, um, you know, survive the, uh, the, the, the global financial crash. And um, and we've been a successful business, um, good clients, good reputation. We've got lots of work on at the moment. But the, the, the most interesting thing occurred through the course of uh, last year in that um, we were um, um, headhunted um, for purchase by an American uh, construction management group. Um, they're based in New York and Los Angeles. Um, they're very large in the States. I think they're the 13th largest uh, group. They're all, all around the world, built lots of the Disneylands, things like Amazing. that. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, so they asked if we, w- we could possibly be for sale. And, um, and we hadn't really thought about that. Um, so it was a bit of a new thing for us. Um, but equally, we hadn't really looked at how we were going to handle succession within the practice. Right. So Andrew and I are roughly the same age. And um, and we had some interesting dynamics occurring within the firm. We had some young surveyors here that we saw a lot of prospect with and we had asked them to join the equity. But they had said, and, and this is what we were finding, was, well, we don't want to commit to a firm or a job mm. for life. Um, we're seeing other things in our lives and we see how hard you guys work. We see the risks you take. And therefore, do you mind if we decline taking equity? And this was quite instrumental in in, in our thinking in saying, right, well, maybe we need to take a different view of yeah. how, how we're working. So um, so we explored the discussions with these Americans and we sold the business to them in December, um, which I think is an interesting metric. Congratulations. Yes, is an interesting metric because, you know, being hard-nosed construction people in the States you'd think they would believe some of Mr. Trump's rhetoric, wouldn't you? <laughs> and you'd think they wouldn't buy a construction business started by a transgender woman oh, in well. the UK. <laughs> so Double I have, a, se- I have I think. a secret delight yes, in what's happened from that point of view. So they bought us and I'm now, now locked in for a number of right. years and I run the business for them here in the States, uh, here in the UK, which is fantastic. And we're doing the same thing day in, day out, just with, 
owners now rather than being self being self-employed and you're also an important campaigner in your own right and you do a lot of conversations like this one and elsewhere where you're very open and honest about everything you have learned and i think that's super important that's why i'm really glad that we spoke today Mm. um which leads me i guess to ask kind of the next question which is what do you think is the best piece of advice you've given to a young person recently I'll tell you the first piece of advice I was given when I started work yeah. back in 1975. And actually, it's always stuck with me. And the advice was never never assume or presume. Mm-hmm. And what it basically means is, you know, deal in fact. Right. Don't, don't, uh, don't pander to, to non-fact. And, and in my business, it's entirely right. Um, so and I've always had it at the back of my head. I think I, I do repeat that to, mm. to people here and, and to the younger surveyors. Um, I, I think being... And, and of course, one of the lessons I've learned about being authentic also translates into being genuine. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember going back into the, the days when I was being trained, you know, I would ask a question like, what if I don't know the answer to this and I'm challenged? Then, you know, that, that those surveyors training me then would say, well, just bullshit your way out right. of it. And I would go, right. And, oh, and God. Of course, but it was part of the this adversarial, you know, it was. And, and, and it, it, it was like that. And, and, and today, it's not like that. You know, today, no, is, if, you, if you don't know, you admit you don't know. Yeah. But you can always find the information source to be able yes, to the, source the information. Yes, you can say, I don't know now, but I will mm. find out. And then you do, you find out as quickly as yeah. is humanly possible. So, so one of the things I, I actually do say is, is not to bullshit. Because yeah. particularly with the boys, um, the boys have this tendency to do it. And um, and in our industry, you can be put in a situation quite easily where you might think, right, I can possibly get away with yeah. this. And you don't realise the damage you're doing when you try to go mm. down that route. So that's a that's a, often, often a first thing that's said to them. Um, by, by the reverse, um, a good example is um, I might get a new client, new project in. And um, and I will often start the thing off. I will I will start to scope the brief. Yeah. Start to imagine with the client so that they're 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 looking at the project properly, so that we can develop what they really want. And quite often, clients will come to us with a specific need or a desire to do something. And by the time we've gone through the first few weeks, they'll realise actually that's not what they need. They need other things. Mm-hmm. They need other services. So in in that process, I will bring um, several people together from the firm to help that that materialise. And, and many times I'll be in a, in a first meeting, blue skying something, boys and girls in the meeting. We'll have the meeting. I will go back to my desk. The phone will ring and it'll be one of the girls and go, she will say, wasn't he talking a load of old rubbish? Ah. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I think he was. But why didn't you say so in the say meeting? Say so in the meeting. And she will say, well, I wasn't sure on my ground or I didn't want to be antagonistic. Or I said, do you think he, the boys feel that way? It's It's so depressing because I know that I have been that person and that I think our instincts and that we are trained to yeah to wait until it's a less public forum and then maybe 10 and the number of times in my career where I have seen my idea presented the following day by a man and it's a massive round of applause but you know when I sort of suggested it the first time it was only criticism and I we have there is only one way of getting rid of that and that is just to be more vocal all the time it, it, it is, but but also to, and so I often say to them, I say, well, don't you realise actually that you're wasting the yeah, business's time totally because true. the forum was created 
to just brainstorm mm-hmm. to blue sky. It didn't matter what you said. You know, why, why were you allowing your personal feelings to get in the way of successfully starting a project? And they will then think that's well, brilliant because it me- right. it's, it's, it's taking, upon it's you taking to, it away yeah. from their personal feelings yeah. into the business sphere. And um, so it's often the way, the way you present these things. And, you know, if, if a boy, girl are working in a business, want to, want, to, want to progress in that business, then they have to share in the ideals of the business equally, whatever, whatever sort of nurture, culture yeah, might yeah. be inherently within them. Um, you know, this, I would be, I, I could be saying exactly the same thing to a very shy, quiet boy yeah. if he was in that meeting. So it's, it's not, it's not, um, you know, I'm not trying to be gender specific here, um, but but it happens with the girls a lot. And, yeah. and, and, and in a way, I try and tease it out. By, I do it intentionally to see how far they want to go. I think it helps them in those early stages. If I was coming to interview with you, mm-hmm. and I'd like to say, in the interest of full disclosure, I have none of the skills that you would need. <laughs> but <laughs> imagine sure, I did. I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> uh, what qualities do you look for when you're hiring? I think that the honesty and the integrity is, is the key bit. Um, which, which is very hard to judge, obviously, at of interview. Course. And um, this, this is obviously outside of the, the hard and fast qualifications that one's looking mm. for professionally. But honesty, integrity, um, and and I know we all have to sort of skirt and dance around certain issues nowadays at interview, you know, with recruitment. Um, you know, you can't ask too many questions about certain things. But I think the more you're able to talk in interviews and, and talk with someone, the more you can understand them and you can appraise them better so we 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 have a, a um we have surveyors the business now is much more multidisciplinary than purely surveyors so i have architects working here i have yeah. engineers working here project managers working here i have people who draw um fantastic drawings on the computer something i can't do yeah. um so so in a way we are looking for different personalities for those of course, tasks I see, yes. and um but honesty integrity um that 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 will desire to be collaborative, not an island, um, happy, um, and and we, we're trying to be really diverse and inclusive. Um, we, but presumably, that's still a challenge in this industry. Is that yeah, it I is. Mean, less so than it is, and 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 I think the difficulty the difficulty we have a little bit is is and we, we we're certainly under par on, on female to male ratio. Um, and when we do sort of start to get get close or, or get to a decent yeah. position, it starts to uh, uh, fall fall back. And so, so it's a it is a constant. It's a delicate battle. balance. It is, to, yeah. yeah. But I think it 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 definitely is the honesty, integrity, yeah. in the person. Okay. Yeah. And my last question: What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? I often get asked the question: Would I have, would it, would I prefer now to have done what I've done earlier? So I've lived right. more of my life as Antonia, and I answer that question very easily and say no. Yeah. Because I have the three most fantastic children, and most fa- I'm, you know you know I haven't said, but although things worked out at work, things obviously worked out yeah. at the family as well. Because it took um, it took Andrea. Um, nearly a year and a half, two years. Um, she, she never asked me to divorce her. She never told me not to come home. Um, obviously, I was only coming back at the weekends as Anthony. And progressively, as I was transitioning at work and working as Antonio all the time, I think I was becoming more androgynous and mm-hmm. I was finding it more difficult to maintain the maleness in me. And um, But she just said one day, about 18 months in, she said, um, I'm, T- Tony with a Y has died. 
Um, I, I adored that man. I loved him to bits, um, but he's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taken me a long time to get over it, um, but I'm over it. Um, oh, don't make me cry, honestly. <laughs> and, and she just said, but there's this other Tony, the Tony with an I, not, not Tony with a Y who's there. And I realised that she's quite nice and maybe she would stay and we would carry on as, as, as a couple. So I said to her, well, that was a dream of mine. You know, what a gracious a, a no and... No way did I yeah. think that would ever happen. And, um, and she said, yeah, we, could we do that? And, uh, and so this was 2005. And I said to her, yeah, I'd love that. I said, that's brilliant. And she said, just one condition. She said, um, can we just live our lives as just two girls and not publicise what's happened? Because she's quite a quiet, yeah. shy person in her own right. She said, I don't want people really knowing, so we don't need to tell them. Let's not, not, let's not broadcast it, was her phrase. And I said, that's okay. I said, I think I've had a, I've had a pretty busy period. I quite like the idea of just knuckling down. You know, I was starting... Of course, thinking, you're in a startup. Start yeah. thinking of planning the business and all that sort of stuff. So I said, um, yeah, no, I can do that. And um, and so from that point, um, we we were two women together. But but of course, um, I I had changed. Um, I was a, f- a female, but I was I still had a male passport right. and a male birth certificate. So I just said to her, the only problem I have is that you know if if I change my birth certificate and my my passport. Um, English legal system will divorce us. They'll automatically divorce us. Because, I didn't know that. Because two women can't be married. Of as, course. As okay. two men can't be married. So I said, we will end up being divorced by the state. And she said, well, um, what can we do about that? And I just said, well, I won't change my passport. I won't change my birth certificate. She said, well, you're all right with that? And I said, why not? I've been doing it right. in a way, nocturnally, <laughs> and, and all sorts of strange things for the last few years. So I said, yeah, no, I'll, I'll do that. So, so from 2005 for a good six-year period, I, I went everywhere around the world on as Antonia, as you see me now, yeah. with a male passport. I remember standing for like four hours in Hong Kong uh, <laughs> customs because they didn't know whether to let me in or not. All sorts of strange things. And, and Russia was a, was an interesting I was situation. going to say, I, there are certain places that are going oh, to be less easy than others. Uh, they were difficult. <laughs> but, but, but interestingly, of course, Mr. Cameron brings in yeah, same, so same-sex uh, marriage thing act. <laughs> and... Um, um, we had to wait a year because the transgender uh, spe- uh, spousal veto took some time to sort out. But as soon as that was through, uh, we changed our marriage certificate. Um, well, well, I changed my passport. I changed my birth certificate. And therefore, we changed our marriage certificate from a um, conventional marriage certificate to a yeah. same-sex marriage certificate. So we're now officially two women married. And we've been married for as two women for 38 years, which of course can't be right, but, but that's how they redo the marriage <laughs> right, certificates. of course. It seems completely bizarre and archaic, doesn't it? It's <laughs> making it much more complicated than yeah. it needs to be. So, um, I mean, it's an amazing story and I, you made me cry, so um, it's, <laughs> <Sorry>. just, <laughs> it's completely ruined my mascara. But, um, <laughs> um, you started just then saying, you often get asked, would you have yes. done the timings differently? Yeah. Is there, is there any one thing that you would want that you think? I mean, basically, I wouldn't change anything about my life. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I consider myself the luckiest transgender person around. And, and I'm enjoying my life. And my daughter's just given us our first grandchild. And <laughs> So many congratulations <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> and he's going to have three nannies. And that, that, that's a little bit complicated, but we're going to get through it. And... Um, <laughs> I wouldn't change anything bar one thing. And, and that's the fact that my father died and he never knew. So he never knew Antonia. Um, he died at the point I 
was just telling Andrea, my yeah. wife, um, he had had, had uh, gone in for a, um, a gallstone removal operation, and it went it went badly wrong, and he died after that operation. Um, and I and I do remember, and it was, it was interesting because if you ever need that that thing to assert how you feel and what you're doing, for me it was standing at his cremation, uh, watching his his uh, coffin go into mm. the into the uh, furnace. And all his mates, all his friends from the building industry, there were guys from estate agents, from building suppliers, other subcontractors, all standing around just saying, what a great bloke Dennis was, what a great man Dennis was. And I'm standing there listening to him just thinking, you know, that could be me if I don't yes. get on with oh, who I gosh. really am. Would all my friends be saying, what a great bloke, or, or maybe not what oh, such not. a great bloke <laughs> Tony was and, and Anthony was. Um, so do and, you think and, that was a moment of clarity for you? Though? Yeah, it, it very much was. Um, and I hadn't told my mum then, um, only Andrea knew. And it, it, for me, it just made me realise I was doing the right thing, mm. um, even though I even though I was in that peak moment of causing upset yeah, and upheaval. Yeah, it was the right thing, even if it wasn't the easy thing. Yeah. Antonia Belcher, I am so grateful for your wisdom and your honesty. It's been such a privilege talking to you. Thank you for being part of this project. And if you're listening and you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget that our book, How to Go to Work, is published by Penguin. The link's in our show notes. So if you're interested in further reading, check that out and we'll direct you to some places that can inspire you even more. Please subscribe and review this episode. It really helps new listeners find us. And if you know someone who's making decisions about who and what they want to be as they enter the world of work, do recommend this project. We're all doing it because we really think we can help people feel more confident and more prepared by sharing the essential advice no one ever tells you as you enter the start of your career. Thank you for listening and thank you to Mark, our editor. Join me, Lucy Clayton, next time for another honest and unvarnished conversation about how to go to work.